I'm Victoria Doherty, and welcome to the cold. Cold is the way revenge is best served, the way a war was fought, and the way a story should be told. And here in the cold, we talk a lot about story. We talk about personal stories. We talk about the stories we tell as professional storytellers, as novelists, and um, and other creators of fiction. And this week, well, this week I want to talk about the end. As of three weeks ago, I was done. I mean, really, really done. I'd written those elusive words, the end. Then I hit the enter key. Now, I'd done this before, but this time I meant it. After reorganizing plot points and rewriting chapters, cutting and splicing, even adding a scene or two, I typed the final sentence of of Sand and Bone, the second big book of my breath series. Well, it's the third if you count Savage Island, which is more like a little book. And this sentence, this final sentence, it's a sentence that's changed about three times since I finished the first draft some months ago. Like, I won't be giving anything away if I tell you what I wrote. So, here goes. But he's gone. And I continue to fall. Those are pretty ominous words. And ones that seem to have carried over from my fictional world into my real life. Book two is closed. Done. Finito. And yet, I've continued to fall. Like the weeks after finishing a book, they can be sticky. At first, there's this big exhale accompanied by the cleanup of what I like to call the afterbirth of a novel. Stuff like contacting the copy editor and reconnecting with the cover and text designers and pulling together all sorts of marketing ideas and all scattered thoughts about looming projects, maybe like a sequel or a novel from from a different genre that you write in or, or an essay like this, right? A verbal essay, something spoken, a story talked about out loud or written down for readers of my blog. It's this time after a novel, I mean, it's, after you finish a novel, it's like this time of fits and starts. It's a time of frustration and a strange lack of focus for someone who has been so focused on this one story, you know, sometimes for years on end. And the funny thing is, is that even if I've got a dozen story ideas tucked away for just this occasion, the occasion of the end, there's still this feeling of depletion. I've given all I've got. And while I'm proud of the work and relieved that the story has made it to the finish line, a pervading sense of detachment and disorientation visits me. 
So I think up chores and I run errands and I follow celebrity meltdowns and watch my favorite YouTube channels for hours on end, all while looking very busy. And this, well, this inevitably leads to bouts of self-flagellation. Egged on by all the secret wallowing and sloth, of course. This feeling of no can do creeps up on me, as if starting a novel is akin to some bygone skill, like, like doing the splits. <laughs> That's why, to my joy and relief, and maybe because of a few virgin sacrifices to the gods of procrastination, the end of Big Book Two of Breath coincided with my daughter Charlotte's big high school graduation trip. One made up of a whole blissful week of mojitos and beach sunsets and Cuban music. I took her to South Beach, Miami. We stayed there for a few days and visited with friends and and then we moved on to the Keys and stayed largely in Key Largo, but drove around quite a bit. Sounds perfect, doesn't it? But hold on to your hats. Because like any story worth its salt, this marvelous excursion came with its own set of complications. In addition to the drug-like draw of playing tour guide for a kid who earned this trip, and I mean earned, I mean straight A's in varsity soccer and piano and guitar, and oh, you get the picture. And also, I didn't have to think of, for one stinking minute about my creative dysfunction while we were away, which was pretty wonderful. But I also found myself having to truly confront the emotional journey of my eldest daughter's pending adulthood. See, she'll be 18 next week. Actually, she'll be 18 tomorrow, which is next week. But tomorrow, Monday the 23rd, she'll be 18 and starting college in the fall. Now, while it's not like she's getting married off and sailing away to the new world on a schooner, likely never to be seen again, I also know it's never going to be the same again. So, in a plot twist, twist, not twist, in a plot twist for damn sake, in a plot twist worthy of a coming-of-age novel, I swapped being consumed by the end of a fiction years in the making with being overcome by the fact that this other epic story in my life, one nearer and dearer to me by far, was also coming to a close. Determined to squeeze every last drop out of everything that could possibly be squeezed, I made a silent vow that my daughter and I would do exactly what we wanted to do whenever we wanted to do it. That we would hold nothing back. 
because I wanted her to remember this trip as a heady collage of firsts and lasts. And let's be honest, I wanted her to remember me, us, the way we've been these past 18 years. Well, first up, we did a lot of talking about Roe v. Wade, the abortion debate that's been preoccupying the American political and cultural conversation, about what it's like moving in with a stranger, which is what she's endeavoring to do as she goes off to college, right? We talked about the differences between Midwesterners and Southerners and East and West Coasters here in the U.S. and whether the pina colada is superior to the strawberry daiquiri. We dug our toes in the sand and floated in the blue, green, salty water. We read YA novels. Emily James is her favorite. We watched comedies, Bridesmaids, anyone? Parasailed, and on every, any given night, ate our body weight in fresh shrimp. I let my thalassophobic daughter, she taught me that word, it means fear of the ocean, my thalassophobic daughter cling to me in the water like she did as a child. I mean, I literally carried her over the sand as we were sort of bobbing there in the water, especially after she almost stepped on a huge live crab. And by huge, I mean like really, really huge, like a king crab. We drove from key to key, vibing with the spirit of each island, gaping at colonial Key West architecture, but not going on the Hemingway house tour. She said, I don't care about the desk where I wrote, Mom. That's boring as hell. Well, I care about the desk where I wrote, but this was about her. We also eavesdropped on conversations of all sorts and endeavored to use our paltry few Spanish phrases. We ate trace leches cake at every opportunity, took in the balmy ocean air, and let our hair curl up until we hardly looked at our, looked like ourselves. But most importantly, we got closer as we prepared to let the space come between us. I suppose we sauntered and swam through our days as if under a spell of perfect mother-daughter love and basked in every spoken word, every touch, precisely because we knew it wouldn't, couldn't last. Not like this. Not now. My girl has some serious growing up to do and she's gonna need me to step back. I'm going to need to step up more for her younger sister now that it's her turn to barrel head on into her tumultuous teen years, developing serious crushes and making new friends, resisting and succumbing to temptation. And I'm going to have to start the process 
of figuring out just how my life will look when mothering becomes less of a full-time occupation and more of an occasional volunteer position. We came home last Wednesday night, and it's always strange to return from a vacation midweek. Charlotte had school the next day, and I, ostensibly, had to sit down and at least try to work. Our spell wasn't broken exactly, but we were no longer alone, nor immersed in a strange and exotic locale. It was time to pick up where we left off. I cuddled my youngest daughter and soaked up all of her stories about how her week had gone, which friend got on her soapbox, and the test she's sure she flunked. The long rehearsals for the school musical. My husband had shopped for the makings of one of our favorite family meals, spaghetti carbonara, and we all hung out in the kitchen and cooked. The next morning, as my workday threatened, I did all of my usual avoidance rituals, the ones I'd been hating myself for, like surfing Twitter, doing laundry and cleaning the bathrooms, paying way too much attention to our dog, Barney. When I couldn't possibly justify another distraction, I said a short prayer. Then I opened a file I hadn't looked at in ages and put my fingers on the keyboard. It's not the idea file for Big Book Three of Breath, which has either no title or seven potential titles, depending on how you look at things. It's for a story called The Tower of Silence. It's a Cold War thriller I'd started months ago, but had to set aside in order to do edits on Of Sand and Bone. It's a project I've been uncertain about, to tell you the truth. Mostly because I've just, I found it hard to get back into the Cold War after immersing myself in the golden age of archaeology for so long. But the words came out strong, like they'd always been there. An indication that maybe, just maybe, Charlotte isn't the only one who might need a little distance. Some fodder for the imagination be put out on a limb to grow. So here's a little snippet of that. Tell me what you think. I mean, it's got some work <laughs> that needs to be done on it, but I don't know. I think for a first try, it's, it's not so bad. It works. Moscow, 1959. 
Paulina seemed different today. Her form was nearly translucent, like the oldest spirits from his childhood fairy tales. And Rodky Semyonov, her loving husband, could scarcely hear her voice. It was a voice that had once been high and clear with the pitch of a songbird's. So distinctive, he could pick it out even in a throng of people. What did you say? He asked her, refilling her teacup. But she was done talking and looked out their window onto the weedy grass of their courtyard before vanishing altogether. New Year's Day, 1938, was the day they had come for Polina and every other close member of Semenov's family. Joseph Stalin had been the jealous sort, and when he discovered Rutki Semenov's particular gift for puzzle solving, he decided his own personal detective was just what he needed. Of course, a wife, a mother, and two young cousins were considered both an inconvenience and a conflict of interest as far as man like Stalin was concerned. They were taken from Rodki and sent to a gulag, where his wife and mother were buried alive, and his cousins were either worked to death or eaten alive by fellow inmates, depending on who you talk to. Well, hopefully that's an interesting start to chapter one. So this week, my friends, I hope you'll take some time to grow and to give yourself space and um, maybe summon some fodder for your imaginations. So until next week, stay cold, my friends, and thank you. Thank you.